to the opening team for their leading us in worship and preparing all of our hearts. Just offering up our praises to God, but for offering up our thanksgivings, our sacrifices, our pain, our suffering, all of that is worshipful to God. And He wants to hear it all. He wants to know it all, what goes on in our life from our perspective. He knows what's going on in their life, but uh, it never hurts to uh, express that to God. It's a, a wonderful healing process. Well, last week, Carrie introduced us to Jesus, the divine Son of God. There's going to be a part two to that down the road, but Carrie gave us an introduction to that. And he extended that right back to creation and to the immensity of the universe and how that uh, wasn't a bad day's work for God. Well, this morning I'm tasked with the sermon topic, Jesus the Life, a topic every bit as grand as the universe. The topic of Jesus the Life doesn't just start in Bethlehem. That's when we normally think of Jesus and the life. He came to us in a manger and he uh, grew to be a man and he ministered for some, uh, uh, in total, um, 33, 34 years of his life upon this earth. But it goes way back before that. Carrie spoke from uh, uh, the first chapter in John, and I just want to repeat some of those verses this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And a little farther down in that chapter, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus was not only around at the time of creation, but he was an active participant in creation itself. It's part of the mystery of the Trinity, isn't it? John ends his record of his vision while he was on the Isle of Patmos at the very end of the book of Revelation. The second to the last verse in the Bible, John records as, Come, Lord Jesus. That's quite a pair of bookends to uh, encompass your life around. If we are to study the life of Jesus, we need to start at Genesis 1, looking at creation, and proceed through the entire Old Testament, looking at the prophecies pertaining to the anticipation of the coming of Jesus the Messiah. But while I'm in the Old Testament, and this may be just me, but give me a bit of latitude here, I'm starting to think of the Old Testament more in terms of the First Testament. The reason for that is, and there's nothing wrong with calling it the Old Testament, but for me personally, it lends me to think it's old, it's history, it's done, it's not a part for my life anymore, but it's, it, that's just not the case. So I think of it as the First Testament. So if you hear me refer to that, grant me a bit of latitude on that. You can talk to me afterwards if you want. But we do need to go back to that Old Testament or First Testament. And not only do we look at the prophecies of the coming Messiah, but we also have to look at all the interaction God had with everybody through that early part of our history, because as the Trinity, Jesus was involved in all of that. And then we need not only to look at the Old Testament, but we need to look at the life of Jesus ushered in under the New Covenant, the coming of the Church Age, or as I like to refer to it, the Second Testament. But you can call it the New Testament if you like to, that's still okay. But we can't stop there, because it doesn't end there. 
You see, then we need to examine the life of Jesus in the future prophecy, which I'll refer to as the Third Testament. It hasn't even been written, and I don't know how that's going to be written, because that's a whole other entity. In the future, there will be no more earth and heaven as we know it, for this shall pass away, and a new earth and a new heaven shall come. And God and Jesus, as part of that trinity, will then dwell amongst his creation once again. That has yet to be written. We may need to send out for pizza this morning. (laughs) There's a whole lot of stuff here to talk about. It's impossible to read the Bible in a half an hour, let alone expound on any of it. And I wish we could spend a lot more time on it. But uh, um, God's been gracious to me. And he's kind of granted me three specific points in time that uh, um, I got interested in talk about this morning. And those three specific points in time are three interactions with his disciples after Jesus' resurrection. The first one I want to take a look at this morning is Jesus and his appearing to Thomas. And the second one is Jesus and his teaching of two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And thirdly, I want to look at Jesus and his commandment to Peter. Three specific points in the life of Jesus this morning. That much I think I can handle in the next 25 minutes. But let's take a look at Jesus and his appearing to Thomas. And we can pick up that text in John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out and put your hand into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. I think Thomas has been given a bad rap over the years. I mean, this is where the expression doubting Thomas came from. I don't know if it's still used anymore, but when I was a kid, it was not an uncommon expression. Doubting Thomas. Thomas was simply looking, someone looking for the evidence. He needed more than just an empty tomb as proof of Jesus' resurrection. He wanted to see Jesus. The Bible doesn't record a lot about Thomas. He's only mentioned 11 times in the Bible, and a lot of those times is part of the group of list of, list of names of Jesus' disciples and apostles. There's not a lot said about Thomas. But this event is recorded. And it should be just as profound for us today as it would have been for Thomas when... Uh, In that locked room, Jesus appeared to them. It's interesting to note that an empty tomb was not enough proof for one of Jesus' disciples, one of Christ's chosen. There are two sides to the resurrection debate when it comes to uh, the resurrection of Christ. Either you believe it or you don't. It gets more complex than that, but that's another bunny trail for another time down the road. But even among those who who don't believe, and I shared a little bit about this at the the communion table this morning, 
That's, uh, even for those who don't believe in the resurrection, they have to agree to a certain conclusion that no body was ever produced of Jesus Christ. No body was ever found, no body was ever produced. The tomb was empty. There are three other points that are interesting to start considering, but as I said, that's a bunny trail for another time. But I believe that the reason the body of Christ was never found was because he did indeed rise from the dead. And he's at this very moment sitting at the right hand of God. And the tomb is empty just as it was recorded in the Bible. But for many people today, an empty tomb is not enough proof. It's not enough evidence. They too are looking for evidence just like Thomas was. We as Christians, more so than in the past, have to be ready with answers to those questions that people have. And there's an abundance of evidence out there. Evidence that goes even beyond what's written in the Bible. Evidence of the accuracy of the Bible, that it's a historical record and its accuracy remains intact today, even thousands of years after it was written. Evidence of an intelligent designer creating the complexity of the universe, as Kerry described it last Sunday. In Canada, I believe that we as Christians live in an atheistic society, or at the very least in a society that has turned its back on God. We can either choose to be silent when someone asks to show them the evidence, or we can take a proactive view and ask God to show us how to be prepared to introduce those questioning people, introduce them to Jesus Christ. Not by challenging their disbelief, but rather by engaging them in their disbelief. Going down a journey with them. People's search for answers haven't changed, but I believe the questions they're asking nowadays is changing. Wouldn't it be great Wouldn't it be great if Jesus was to present himself to the doubters today the same way he did to Thomas? In recent past, there's been debates between noted atheists and noted biblical scholars. Wouldn't it be wonderful if during one of those debates, Jesus appeared the way he did in that locked room and said, here I am? What would those noted atheists say? How would they respond? Would they say, my Lord and my God? Or would they simply say, so you're real, so what? In other words, what would they do with the evidence? You see, while it's our job as Christians to tell the story of the gospel message and present the evidence, we have no control over what somebody does with that evidence. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. The most important part of the account of Jesus appearing to Thomas, in my opinion, is in verse 29, when Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and and yet believed. Everybody who's believed in Jesus Christ and put their trust in him and their faith in him is blessed. If you do nothing else in your Christian life to earn a blessing from God, this blessing is for you because all of us have believed in faith not with sight. Without faith, all the evidence in the world will mean nothing. But with faith, it makes an eternity of difference. Without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. Without faith, all the evidence in the world will not secure for you a place in heaven. And without faith, your prayer life will be meaningless and your service to God will be useless. 
So that's the first little point in time we're looking at. Jesus and his appearing to Thomas. Well, the second point, Jesus teaching on the road to Emmaus. That's a real interesting, unique story in the Bible. And there's a lot of hidden nuances in it that I think uh, God himself can only bring out to us. If you're not familiar with the story, it, it happened after the resurrection. A couple of his disciples were walking from um, Jerusalem to the probably just a little village of Emmaus, about uh, seven miles away. So it's a good day's walk if you're walking it. And along the road they were talking when Jesus suddenly was beside them. But Jesus kept them from recognizing them. And they, they walked and they talked and Jesus taught them. And as evening was falling, they came to uh, Emmaus and they asked Jesus, who they didn't know was Jesus still at the time, come spend the night with us. It's getting late and we'll uh, find a place to stay for the night. And, and Jesus did. So we'll pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. They were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And moving down to uh, verse 25. He, that is Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? At beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what, he, what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Jumping down to verse 30. When he, that is Jesus, was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up at once and returned to Jerusalem. Jesus' disciple Cleopas is mentioned here by name. It's the only place his name appears in the whole Bible. Though he was not a prominent disciple of Jesus, the recording of his name here would at the very least be proof of another eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that anybody in that day could go to and say, you really did see him, didn't you? And he could bear witness to that. Luke chapter 24, verse 21. While they were having that discussion on the road, one of the disciples said to Jesus, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In some respect, these two, di these two disciples were just as doubting as Thomas, although perhaps in a little different way, but they had their doubts, their questions about who Jesus really was. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How foolish you are. It's not the first time Jesus used the word foolish or fool. He used it as recorded in Matthew chapter 5. And it's a, a, very, um, a very telling way that he used the word in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. 
It reads, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, the way Jesus was speaking of the word fool or foolish in Matthew is different from how he used it in uh, the account on the road to Emmaus. You see, in Matthew, Jesus was referring to the word fool as a word of contempt. And he says, that's not the attitude you are to have towards your brothers and sisters. But rather, on the road to Emmaus, when he said, how foolish you are, he was merely implying, don't you get it? Don't you understand? How many times do I have to explain it to you? Jesus did not say, and this is something that's easy to miss, Jesus did not say, how slow of mind you are, but rather he said, how slow of heart you are. There's a real difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Jesus taught them not what they needed to learn, but rather he taught them what they needed to understand and accept by faith. Here's a stumbling block for so many people when it comes to eternal salvation. Though all the information is available to them, the majority of people on this earth will choose to ignore it, to not believe it, to just cast it aside. More so than at any other time in history, we have the most educated population in Canada. And yet the vast majority of people choose not to even seek out the evidence let alone weigh it to decide for themselves if the, is the gospel true, and if so, what do I do with it? See, it's one thing to come to the conclusion, yeah, this is true, but it's another to say, now what do I do with it? What do I do with the evidence? Is it possible that part of the mystery of God's election is that he only chooses to open the ears and the eyes of those who have a heart ready to accept the message? Luke doesn't record Jesus' motivation in choosing these two disciples to have such an intimate encounter with them. But I believe it's safe to assume that Jesus would not have joined them on that road if their hearts would not be receptive to his teaching. He walked with them several miles and taught them that he was not sent to be an earthly king to overthrow the Roman oppressors, but rather he came to offer Salvation from the oppression of sin. We can take the story and apply it to our life today in that it doesn't matter how dense we are when it comes to understanding the Bible. If our hearts are truly desiring of God's wisdom and leading in our lives, he will go out out of his way to show us the answers. This event made such an impact on the lives of these two men, that though they were in an inn, some place where they were ready to stay the night, it was getting dark out, not a good time to be traveling in that uh, part of the world, in that part of the time. They had no LED headlamps, they had no, no, uh, uh, no flashlights, nothing to guide their way back in the middle of the night, but they chose to get up from their table and rush back to Jerusalem. They wanted to share that news with the others around them. Jesus sought out these two men to teach them. And we can presume that they went on to teach others what Jesus had taught them. Today, the third part of the Trinity is at work in all the Christians, teaching and edifying us. The Holy Spirit works in all of us who profess Christ as our Savior, teaching us and leading us. 
we can look back an event and say, you know, I don't know where the words came from that I spoke. Have you ever had that happen to you? And it's not until after the event that you realize, that was a gift from God that he gave me. Those weren't my words. Those were his. I was just merely his mouthpiece. Just as Jesus kept his identity from his disciples until the time was right, so the Holy Spirit can keep the source of wisdom from our lives until the timing is right. See, the interesting thing with God, time really doesn't mean anything. I mean, he's been around for forever and he'll be around for forever. Time doesn't mean anything. But timing is so important for God. Timing is everything. Just having the Bible is not enough. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand it and help to make it an application into our lives. Just as Jesus taught Cleopas and his companions on the road to Emmaus, so too the Holy Spirit will teach us on our journey through this life. Well, that's point number two. Point number three. Jesus is commanding to Peter. And we can read that uh, story in John chapter 21. And this is part of the miraculous catch when uh, Jesus' disciples were out in the boat Nothing much was going on. You weren't catching anything. And Jesus appeared and called to them, Hey, throw your net on the other side. And the net was so full, they were afraid it was going to break. And that's when they started recognizing Jesus. And uh, they joined him for a shore lunch. And we can pick it up in John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus, in reinstating Peter, does not ask Peter if he would care for his sheep. He wasn't asking him. He was commanding him to take care of my sheep. Take care of that infant church that is just beginning. Three times Peter denied Christ the night he was arrested. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him. By the third time, Peter was getting upset. Lord, you know I love you more than these. Impetuous Simon Peter, who more than once put his foot in his mouth, would indeed become a strong leader and would be that shepherd for the sheep, the church that Christ had established, just as Jesus had commanded him to do so. Peter got a do-over. He got a second chance. Have you ever been on the golf course? And uh, off the tee, your ball goes in the water, and your partner says, just do it over. We won't count that one. He got a do-over, a second chance to get it right. And Jesus gave him the command to feed my sheep. I was telling Eve Bluen this morning, I said, I really admire you. You've got such a headache of a job working with computers. Um, I, I've, got, I've got a nine-year-old desktop computer that I use. And it's still working, but every once in a while, there's this little tiny round button on it that when my computer freezes because I've asked it to do something it didn't want to do, and Control-Alt-Delete doesn't work anymore. I got this little button that says Reset. You push that button and the computer is forced to reset itself back to the way it was. And every once in a while I've had to press that. Wouldn't it be 
great if we had a reset button that we can just press on those days when we've just really screwed it up and we just like to go back to the beginning and start it all over? Wouldn't it be great if we had a reset button? I got the perfect location for it. What if, what if our belly button was a reset button? <laughs> I mean, so, so think of it. It's perfectly located. It's, it's central. It's right where we can get to it. It's recessed, so we're not going to press it accidentally. But our finger fits perfectly right into it. Yeah. But God in his wisdom didn't give us a reset button. Some of us would be pressing it every day. But God is willing to give all of us a do-over, a second chance. It doesn't matter how bad we've screwed up. Even the most heinous of criminals can have a second chance with God. It's a repentant heart that God looks for. And he sees that repentant heart even before we see it in ourselves. The question we need to ask ourselves that was asked of Peter, do we love God more than those around us? Do we love God more than our spouses? Do we love God more than our children, our grandchildren? Do we love God more than our parents? Are we willing to trust God, even if it means the sacrificing of our relationship with someone we love very dearly? That may not be our choice to sacrifice that relationship, but if it means ending a relationship, does it mean loving God that much? That's a hard question to honestly know the answer to. And it's often not until we're in the position of having to choose between God and someone we love will we honestly know the answer to that within us. A lot of professions go through training for life and death scenarios. Ryan, in his police training, no doubt, went through training and scenarios. What to do if this happens? How will you handle the situation that could be life-threatening? Firefighters go through it. Pilots go through it. As much training and scenarios as you go through, you will not know how you will actually react in real life until the situation actually presents itself. And that's when we really know the answer to that. Well, we have two choices in life. We can choose God or we can choose the world. For those who choose the world, trust me, you're in for a lonely ride. A journalist recently had an article in the Daily Press, and uh, it was all about the uh, idea of the loneliness of liberalism. And he wasn't talking about a political party. He was talking about the philosophy of liberalism and how lonely that actually is in this world. Liberalism is all about me, my rights, what's best for me. By definition, there's only room for I in a liberalistic society. Liberalism professes, if we all do what we want, we will all be happy. That may work in theory, and perhaps even for the first 30 seconds you try to implement it, but as soon as my life disagrees with your life, all that goes out the window, and my rights are more important than your rights, and uh, I don't care about your rights anymore, and I don't care about you. It's all about I. Society's command today is to look out for yourself. Look out for number one. And Satan is getting a, to be a master at getting us to run around like a dog chasing its tail. Some dogs with a longer tail have a better chance of getting closer to the tail. But even if a dog catches its tail... What's it going to do with it? There's no game plan. So it is with the world. No game plan, 
They're just making it up as they go along. The proof of that is everything is about the here and the now. I see nothing in the world's philosophy that speaks of the future, not the way the Bible does. In the Bible, we have the history of creation, and it continues right on into the church age, and it has within there the instructions on how to live a life that's pleasing to God, how to live a life in service to God, how to live a life that's content in all situations. But the Bible doesn't stop at the here and now. The Bible goes on to speak about the future. What will happen when Jesus returns? What will happen when the new heaven and the earth, new earth are created? That's something that the world's philosophy doesn't have, is that historical. What will we do when that happens? It's all about the here and now. People who denounce Christianity will often say, it's just about rules. The things you can't do. And that must be so boring to be a Christian. On the contrary, Christian isn't about what we can't do. Christianity is about freedom. Freedom from the blind leading the blind. I remember once driving down the highway. I was stopped at the traffic lights. And uh, there in front of me was the uh, uh, service van from Gail's Drapery. And I read on the back door, it said, Caution, blind man driving. That's pretty good. But that's profound. How many of us blindly follow those that we think know that really don't know what's going on in this world? I mean, psychology can't even define or measure consciousness. They have no definition for it, even though that's something every one of us has. Science has no definition for energy. They can measure it, tell you its effects, but there's actually no definition for energy. The medical profession has yet to find a cure for the common cold. Mathematicians try to get around their dilemma when they can't find an answer by making one up and using imaginary numbers. That's just cheating, so I'm not (laughs) including them. But the smartest people in society can't figure out everyday things around us, but yet society professes to tell God why he's got it all wrong. Many Many people simply say there is no God, so they don't have to be accountable to him. That works for perhaps a few short years that we're on this earth. But there will come a time when, if those doubters are wrong and there is a God, and I believe there is one, there will come a time in their life when they will receive one last command from God, and that's the command that they're having to spend an eternity in hell. Logically, it just makes more sense to me that there is an intelligent designer to all that we see and don't see, and the evidence points to that, and the evidence points to God as that intelligent designer. For those who believe and put their trust in God, we too will receive a command from God when we step over into eternity, and that command is going to be, come and join me in heaven. Your room's all ready. Three pinpoint encounters that Jesus had with his disciples. The first involved faithful belief. The second involved heartfelt teaching. And the third involved a loving command. The question that I'll leave you with this morning is do you have the faith to believe, the heart to be taught, and the love for God to obey his commands? Do we have a closing hymn, Steve? Okay, I'll ask Steve and the group to come up and I'll uh, close us off in prayer afterwards. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time that we've spent here this morning. And Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we adore you, and we love you. I pray, Lord, for each of us here this morning, that indeed our hearts 
we'll be open to your leading. That it would be our desire not to look to what's in our best interest, but to look to you and say, what do you want me to do, Lord? Command me and I will follow. Send me and I will serve. Be with me and I'll be that mighty warrior that you want me to be. Help us, Lord, as we leave these doors this morning and go out into the community, that indeed this is what we will be, that we will be ambassadors for you in a world that so desperately needs to know you and to have that relationship with you. So thank you again, Lord. And uh, I pray that you would be with us throughout this week and that you would bring us safely back again next week and that we would be able to say it's indeed has been good this past week to be in your presence. Amen. There's uh, something from our secret brother out there. <laughs>